Greetings. Welcome to Volts. I am your host, David Roberts. It is now widely agreed among energy wonks that the fastest, cheapest way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is to, as I like to put it, electrify everything. That means cleaning up the electricity grid with renewables and other carbon-free sources while shifting other energy uses, especially transportation and buildings, off of fossil fuels onto electricity. One technology in particular sits at the heart of electrification, helping to decarbonize the electricity system, vehicles, and homes. I am speaking, of course, of the humble solar photovoltaic panel, a technology that has defied expert predictions for decades now, getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, spreading faster and faster. But the spread of rooftop solar panels is just the leading edge of a much larger shift to what's called distributed energy, energy that is generated, managed, and or shared at the local level, serving local independence and resilience. As I've followed electrification and the growth of distributed energy, one of the people I've learned the most from in conversation and through her writing is Lynn Jurich. She is uh, an insightful observer and analyst of the U.S. energy system, and also, incidentally, happens to be the CEO and co-founder of America's largest residential solar company. Sunrun has been around since 2007. It has seen some ups and downs, but lately it has been all ups. The company adapted relatively quickly to the pandemic shutdown, invested heavily, and had a banner year in 2020. Then, to top it off, it bought its leading competitor, Vivint, for $3.2 billion. Sunrun is now sitting at the top of a rapidly expanding residential solar market with a valuation of some $22 billion. So, without further ado, Lynn, welcome to Volts and congratulations on your successful global conquest. Thank you, David. It's it's my pleasure, and um, that was a very flattering intro. Yeah, I like the <laughs> the call out to you know I'm an analyst and a student, but hopefully, what I get across today is that I'm also street smart. I'm trying to figure out how to do this electrification, <laughs> you know, fast and uh, and easily. Not one of these out of touch CEOs you sometimes hear about. So I wanted to start big. I, rather than get your canned history of Sunrun and, and all this stuff, I want to get your mind going. So let's start with the biggest question first then. Put aside your quarterly forecast, maybe even your one-year plan or your three-year plan. Tell me what you envision for Sunrun in 10 years or 20 years. What in its most glorious and successful incarnation do you want Sunrun to become? Great question. And really, it's about leading this energy transition and doing it at the household level. So, you know, we started, as you know, as a, as a solar company, and really the innovation was making it affordable. So we invented the solar as a service business model. And I think that's really what we are great at is trying to figure out the business models, the you know the value creation for the homeowner, for the owner of these distributed assets, for the utility grid broadly, for society is you know creating these new models to operate together and, and really lead this transition to electrification. 
So what I would envision is, you know, we have enough space on the roofs, you know, with our carports to power, you know, 25 to 30 percent of electricity in the country. And, you know, if you if you pull in, as Saul Griffith from Rewiring America likes to do, when you pull in the roadways into that, too, you know, I think the total square footage of just built environment that we can put solar panels on is 21 um, million square feet. And we'd only need 15 million um, to power it with with rooftop solar. So certainly, I think there's just a huge growth ahead around using our local existing infrastructure, producing solar where it's consumed, which is really the breakthrough technology from solar is this distributed nature of it. And then when I look to what we are going to help unlock, you know, to electrify the house and the vehicles in the home, you're going to need two to three times more electricity into that house. And that's going to create congestion on the distribution system and, you know, a need for a lot of investment. And so I think we really want to both deliver a amazing electrification experience to our homeowners with the solar, with the battery, with the EV charging capability. But then we are back to the business model innovation where we're really innovating right now is to figure out how you take that home energy asset and contribute it to the grid. So I think we'll talk more about these, but we're, you know, creating virtual distributed power plants here that can help us get off the peaking dirty power plants. You know, I think it's way overstated how much we need to still rely on, you know, peaking natural gas. And so that's really the vision is we're that loved utility essentially for the homeowners across the country. Okay, well, that's the big picture let's wind back a little bit to the to the present and the and the current business model one thing i want to hear about is this new deal you've struck with ford which i believe will be announced the day this podcast is being released so here are your chance to make your first public comments about it what what are you doing with ford and what's and what's the what's the motivation for it well electric vehicles are just such a huge unlock for decarbonizing energy, as you know, and the customer experience can still be somewhat confusing. And, you know, people want to make sure that their electric vehicles are powered by renewable energy. So we have struck a partnership with Ford. And as they launch the Ford F-150, we'll be their preferred installer of the, of the chargers. And what's really also innovative about what they're what they're launching here is the charger, the battery in the car will be bi-directional. So, you know, what that'll enable it to do is if the home does have a power outage, the car can be used for backup power. And, you know, so this really aligns nicely with a lot of the innovation we're bringing around creating these virtual power plants and turning the home into an energy asset for the entire grid. And, you know, this partnership, I think, is just a launching pad for this next phase of innovation around the home and and how further electrification looks and our ability to deliver that to a homeowner in a with a great customer experience. I think, you know, right now, a lot of people, they love the electric vehicles, but it's still confusing. You have you have the utility, you have the electrician, you have the dealer, you have the OEM, and many times they don't really talk to each other. And I think that's what we're great at is we're in the home, we can be that energy advisor. And then from a business model standpoint, of course, when you electrify the vehicle, 
we will put even more solar panels up on the roof. And that incremental power is some of the cheapest to build anywhere because when you are already spending the time and money to go to the house and pull the permit and get the you know installers there, adding a few additional panels are the cheapest kilowatt hours we can put on the grid. So I'm really excited about the ability to you know do it all at once. So this is a it's a feature of the battery. For some reason, I thought it was a feature of the charger. Does do are, are the chargers special in any way, or is it just a battery? Or, or what's the how do, how does the bidirectionality work? We are excited to announce the partnership with Ford, which we think will pretty dramatically change the way we think about generating and consuming power in the home. We're going to be the preferred installer for their charge station and the home integration system broadly. And what's innovative about their system is that, you know, they're working to have the battery serve as backup power for the home in the extent that the grid goes down to provide resiliency. So we're pretty excited about this opportunity to partner with Ford because it's a natural time for homeowners to think about solar panels on their roof when they're buying a new electric vehicle because the cost of electricity can be, you know, almost double to serve that additional load. The other benefit from just a business model standpoint and from a carbon reduction standpoint is, you know, because people, when they adopt the EV, they need much more power in the house. Therefore, you would install a larger solar system. You know, that incremental capacity on the roof, if you can really max out the roof, that is some of the cheapest renewable power we can put on the grid because most of the cost in a residential solar business is visiting the house. It's the soft cost surrounding that visit to the home. You know, solar panels have become so inexpensive now that the cost to put that incremental capacity on is quite affordable. And so it delivers a a very nice value proposition to the consumer. So if I'm a Ford 150 customer, prospective customer, part of the benefit to me then of buying the Ford 150 is getting that backup power. I mean, this is one of the confusing things. You know, when we talk about electrification, there's so many, as you said before, there's so many entities involved, so many so many people involved, so many businesses involved, so many, you know, pieces working together. So who is marketing that to the customers of the Ford 150. Is that you doing that or Ford or is there some sort of... It will be both companies. It's going to be sort of intrinsic to the marketing of the Ford 150 that it brings this this added benefit? It brings this added benefit, yes. It brings a Sunrun as the preferred installer for the charger and the ability then to electrify the home further at that moment in time. Because, you know, again, the benefit to the homeowner of doing all of that at once is very high from a return standpoint just because of the soft costs that surround many of these electrification changes in the home. Something I just learned the other day that kind of blew my mind a little bit is that the Ford 150 batteries, well, really any EV battery, even like a Tesla EV battery, is actually bigger and higher capacity than the home batteries that Tesla sells. And it'll be, I think, doubly true of the Ford 150, I assume because it's a pickup truck, it'll have very large batteries, actually bigger than home batteries. So I wonder, like, this is skipping ahead a little bit, but I wonder, like, in in the future when we're talking about the electrified home, if you have EVs with these giant batteries hooked up to your house as backup, 
do you also need a home backup battery? Are those redundant in some way? How do you see those two pieces fitting together? No, I think you need both. And it goes back to this concept of retiring all these peaking inefficient power plants. When you have the stationary battery in your house, you're able to dispatch that power without interrupting anything in your life. So it can be really considered more firm capacity for the grid. If the grid planners are really thinking about, okay, I know I'm going to need power at these times a day. And as the, as the markets move more towards a time of day, you know, power price model to match supply and demand appropriately, you use that battery then to export when, you know, power is most expensive And you wouldn't want to do that with your car because, you know, you may be wanting to drive it. And just like why, this is why stationary batteries, I think, are so powerful versus a demand response kind of program because of that firm nature of it and the fact that you don't have to change your behavior for the benefit. This is skipping ahead too, but we're here now anyway. So of all the pieces of the electrified home, you know, there's a bunch of pieces. How many of them do you envision Sunrun selling? Are y'all going to sell batteries? Are you going to sell connected appliances? You could imagine selling home energy management systems and software. I mean, there's a lot of pieces of the sort of electrified building puzzle. How much of that do you want Sunrun to get into? Absolutely. I think we should be involved in all of those aspects of electrifying the home. And it really comes back to this idea of you have the one-time cost when you do it. And because solar is a high ticket item, you know, the solar panels last for 30 years. So the the customer value that you get off of a solar system is quite high. And so then that enables you as from a business model standpoint to potentially give some of these other benefits away and still have a nice return. So you could imagine us, you know, you, you switch over to solar to power your Ford F-150, not only are you going to save money, and with our business model, you can do that with zero upfront investment, but maybe the you, you get a discount on the charger or the charger is free. And that works from a business model standpoint. And I think that, you know, maybe we'll get to this too, but there's also a lot of work that needs to be done at the house to upgrade the, the electric panel you know, around this. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that because I think that's a really unappreciated bottleneck right now. Well, let's talk about, talk about these soft costs you mentioned then, because, you know, just for listeners benefit, sort of the hard costs of, of solar installations are the stuff and the labor, the actual stuff involved and the soft costs are permits et cetera, all these other things you have to do around the installation to make it happen. So first, you know, sort of notoriously, people who have followed the solar installation business know that it's much cheaper to get solar on your rooftop in, say, Germany than it is in the U.S. And that difference is almost all in the soft costs. So maybe try to maybe give us a sense of if I'm just Joe Schmo homeowner and I buy a, a solar system, what is the balance of hard and soft costs that I'm paying? And then maybe say a little bit more about why those soft costs are such a problem and how you want to try to reduce them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The international example is really the purest way to look at this. And an installation in a Germany or a Australia with similar equipment, similar labor prices is half the cost. Whoa. Half. And the difference is that it's often treated as a simple appliance. So you're a customer... 
So one, it's normalized a bit more. It's just more natural. I think rooftop solar penetration in Australia is, you know, in the 20% now, whereas in the U.S. it's 3%. So it becomes a little more comfortable for people to adopt. And then once they adopt it, it's, you know, installed in two or three days. It's instantly interconnected to the utility. Contrast that to the experience in the United States. And, you know, you have... Each jurisdiction has different permitting rules. Some jurisdictions have adopted different electric codes. There can be a lot of restrictions around upgrading your electric panel. And all of those make the time from when you sign up to a solar system to when you actually can get it installed. That can be 90 days. That can be a lot of rework. You're going back and forth with the the local jurisdiction because in one you know, town, they need the panels three feet step back from the roof, but in the neighboring town, it's a foot, you know, and so we're, and so this is one of the big opportunities, I think, in, that we need to pay attention to in the U.S. is that we, these become really big bottlenecks. So here's, here's an example of, you know, what we're living right now. So, you know, most customers in California, you know, they're just, electric panels are not designed for this increased load from, a solar or EV, it's a requirement that the utility, you know, come out and and inspect and and install. We try to set that up for our customers. In Southern California Edison utility, that has to be done over the phone. The wait time is six hours. And by the time time you get through, um, you were only allowed to submit seven at one time. So it's these are seven seven inspections of solar uh, of of electrical panels. Yes, exactly. So the those and I could give you you know hundreds of those examples. So do you wait? Do you have an employee whose <laughs> whose job it is to sit for six hours on the listening to hold music? Yes, you got it. You got it. <laughs> Probably about as stimulating as working in a you know in a toll booth. I don't know. I mean, I think it's you know, but it can be done easily online. And so, and, and they and they won't do it online though. There's no online. We're we're, work, we're working on it, but I think you know this gets back to some of the broader challenges where many utilities, not all, but many utilities, see what we do direct to the consumer as competition, and mm. the playbook in many cases has been add as much friction as possible to the process. Oh, so these soft costs are not all necessarily just accidental artifacts of history. You think some of it is on purpose? I do. I think that the there's a lot of awareness here around how we can make these codes more restrictive or hide behind safety as as a reason. And so I think it's one of the things that we definitely need to to clean up. I had another example today, which I thought was interesting. My, my co-founder, you know, he, he spent a lot of money to upgrade his electric service in his home. And in order to sign off on that, PG&E has required him to cut down a couple of trees, but then the city of San Francisco won't let him cut the trees down. <laughs> so the, so as we try to electrify our built environment, these are the, you know, this is getting back to when I talk about, I like to call myself street smart because I want to cut out all of these unnecessary frictions. And we have to be really careful, particularly in a place like California that has a lot of different constituents thinking about different things. And and when you throw fire safety in that and this electrification, it's a it's a tricky I have a I have a million questions about this. And one of them is part of this just seems like an outgrowth of the sort of 
federalism of just kind of local control in, in the U.S. Is it the case in Australia and Germany that there are just federal guidelines on these things that apply equally to everyone across the country? Is it, is it as simple as that? They just have one one rule there? It is as simple as that. And we're working with the Department of Energy, NREL, to promote something similar. So, you know, what how it works in other countries is there's typically, you know, you're an approved installer and you've, you know, met the code requirements. It's all electronic. It's instantaneous. Mm. And that, by my calculations, that would save $7,000 per home. Oh, my goodness. Just a change like that. And so we have worked, the industry has worked with, you know, the government to try to put together a software program that follows the code, you know, has all, you know, puts the best practices into the software, and then jurisdictions can adopt it. So, but it's a ground, it's it's not a top-down mandate. I mean, there's a bill in California that tries to make it a mandate right now, but, you know, there's always workarounds around that. So I think you're right on, on the local control thing, and, and it's it's something we're, we're going to have to address. Yeah, but even jurisdictions can adopt these things. I mean, but they don't have to, right? I mean, there's really no there's really no mechanism on the horizon to unwind this kind of localism in any uh, is there any way to cut through this Gordian knot in a more simplified way? You know, what we're trying to do on this particular one with the instant permitting and interconnection is software program is go to the most influential places and really prove that it works. So it is very much bottoms up. I mean, if you look at Las Vegas is is an area where they moved to instant permitting and interconnection and our cost structure there is significantly better. The customer experience is significantly better. You know, we'll install within two weeks versus 90 days in many places. There's a lot of things that happen here. So, you know, there sometimes solar is used as a way to find other unpermitted structures on the on the building. You know, we do we will have to make some tough calls around things like, is it okay for third parties to touch the electric meter? Is it okay for utilities to do these inspections virtually? We need to make some decisions around that because if we want to do this at speed with a decent customer experience. We need to change the way all this local variation. Well, I can imagine, I mean, it's pretty easy to imagine a system that would incentivize communities, local governments to want to do this, right? To be sort of active partners and pursue this sort of simplification and speeding things up. But what I don't see is how you get utilities on board, at least the way they're currently structured. I mean, just, just you know, I'm not saying anything you don't know, and, I, and I've written a hundred times, but just to review it for listeners, investor-owned utilities don't make money selling electricity. The way they make money is by investing in infrastructure, and they get a, a guaranteed rate of return on that infrastructure. So if you come in and say, look, I've got this product that will allow your customers to buy less of your electricity and therefore need less infrastructure, and therefore you will have to invest less in infrastructure, and therefore you will make less money, you're just, <laughs> there's, it's just at a very deep level, you are and and them are directly at loggerheads they make money by spending money and you are and you represent a way to reduce the amount of money they need to spend that's the root of it and so everything that we talk about about trying to get around that is such a sounds like such a kludge to me you know like such a patch over a patch over a patch 
Is there any, I mean, do you, in, in your head or in your discussions, is there anything bigger than that? Is there any way to go after that root, fundamental, sort of misaligned incentives problem? Yeah, I think there, there are. I mean, I think the, the model should be something that's more performance-based versus, like you said, a, just a cost plus on infrastructure. And I think the other challenge that we have is when we start to do some of this bigger system-wide planning, every, the way we do it is backward-looking. You know, and it doesn't anticipate any sort of technological change, and it's short-term as well. And so, you know, we, we worked with more sophisticated modeling to actually, let's really, let's really appreciate, you know, where costs of these distributed energy technologies go and, and EVs and, and more granularly look at the power of the DERs and the strain on the distribution system. And, you know, the modeling shows that if we have the distributed assets, to your point, we need a lot less investment in the transmission and, and distribution infrastructure. And I and even and these models are also, in my opinion, underestimating the cost reductions we're going to continue to see around solar and batteries. And then in parallel, how exp- it's not getting any cheaper to build transmission lines in California. And so in many ways, I think there's enough value, even if we don't change the regulatory model, there should be enough value to get to a compromise here. And, you know, when you think about all the transfer of value that's going to go from oil companies to utilities, you know, just getting back to my opening comment and, and the utility, you know, and, and this is a more California centric, but I think we saw this in Texas too. I mean, there's the resiliency problems are very real. Yeah. And, and, and so I think the other benefit of these distributed resources are, you know, you can offer something that offers resiliency locally and that is, should be, we should be able to find a way where that value is appreciated, I think. But, you know, well, I yeah, think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's appreciated by homeowners. It's appreciated by communities. In, in some sense, it benefits the larger grid, too. But it's really no skin off the utilities back. If you, you know, if you lose power for a few days or you, and you die from lack of insulin or whatever, like really none of that materially affects the utilities' bottom line. It's crazy. It's a real issue. And then, and then, you know, in, but back, and back to just sort of longer term, more systems thinking that anticipates technology. I think that's so critical because to make 30 year infrastructure investments with, you know, backward looking information and, and pricing is not a recipe for success here. And so, and so that is, you know, also, you know, something that we're really trying to encourage. But, you know, you, to your other point, I think the majority of, utility executives are like five years away from retirement and our, you know, (laughs) regulators are in the role for three years. So there's there's a a lot of focus on, okay, what are we going to do next year? And rates are up, you know, 8% due to wildfires in Northern California. Well, you know, and then there's some false blame put on rooftop solar for that. Well, you could eliminate all rooftop solar in California and rates are still going up. Why is that? For the, for the benefit of California listeners, why do their rates seem to inexorably go up? Is it just the fires and the transmission or is it a larger thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, um, the, the fires, the, I think the just fragility of the system with extreme weather was something people just didn't anticipate. And so the infrastructure in this country is really old. 
Um, you know, I think if you if you go out and look at some of those poles and wires, I mean, some of them are, you know, 75 plus years old through these mountains. You know, there's no easy solution to that. With the high winds, you're just going to, you can't afford to bury them all and you can't do it in a, in a, in a fast way. And that's why this resiliency and the, the power of these distributed batteries and the, you know, the electric vehicles helping as a resource for the backup power are just going to be that much more valuable to consumers. So that's my, you know, my overarching point to the regulators and the powers that be on this is let's make sure that the two systems are talking to each other because you're not going to stop homes, Americans, from getting solar and batteries. It's just the costs are going to continue to get better. It will be a market even no matter what if the utility won't take the power you know, back. When you look at where utility rates are going to go, where they have to go with the you know, increased investment and the reduction of the distributed assets, it's going to be there whether you like it or not. And, you know, so let's set up the mechanisms where the two systems talk to each other. And that's that's what I'm, you know, talking about with these virtual power plants where, you know, in California, when we had the blackouts last summer, you know, the, the folks operating the grid, you know, would call and say, hey, can you please, dis- we're going to be short power this time. Can you please help and dispatch power from your batteries at these hours? And And it's like, yeah, but pay us for it, you know? And, and it's, you know, there's still, it's, we're so slow to adopt a market actually where the value of these resources can actually be valued and compensated. Yeah, it really does not seem like a modern electrical system ought to be run on phone calls. <laughs> hey, hey, buddy, <laughs> what you got up by the way of power over there? That really does not seem like an ideal solution. So you, you mentioned street smarts earlier. Of course, me loving the abstractions and the systems always want to go to sort of like the highest level, like what one solution could cut through all this, some sort of federal edict. Obviously, that's probably unlikely and probably not going to happen. So just based on your sort of battle scars of the tangle of agencies and jurisdictions and rules and permits in this whole sort of thicket of soft costs, what is the sort of level of control where you think you can get the most change for the for the least effort? Sort of like where are the where are the where are the places where a little bit of tweaking can do a lot of good? Is it is it at the state? Is it state regulators? Is it local communities? Like where do you think is the most fruitful place to push for actual tangible short term change? I think it's two places. One is the instant permitting at the local jurisdiction. And I again, I think we have the software solution. It's a, it's working. It's the DOE actually the most recent or the recent infrastructure plan has earmarked the DOE to to put out 20 million dollars a year in soft cost reductions so they could put some incentive payments to HJs mm. to adopt that, you know, which I think is a really good idea. And that's a municipal thing. That's like a city yeah. council city council decision. That's a yeah. They're technically a thing called authorities with jurisdiction, having authorities having jurisdiction. HJs. There's I think thousands of them across the country, and and so I think that's one great place. I think the other place is around mandating utilities to be reasonable around upgrading of the panel and the interconnection of the system with turnaround times, with you know. Except, you know, with a real, a realistic look at what are the true risks here. And so I think allowing third parties to help upgrade some of this, you know, electrical service infrastructure is just 
going to be critical because otherwise that will be such a bottleneck. And like you said, utilities don't have any incentive to go out and, and do that in a timely fashion because it's taking more, it's taken away from building more infrastructure. <laughs> right, right. And they, and they probably, I'm sure, will tell, will say they don't have like the resources necessary to kind of staff up and be more, be more, you know, respond to these things with more alacrity. Is, is that That is real? part of the narrative, correct. <laughs> so let's then talk about, you mentioned net metering, you referred to it. In California, um, just so we're not using terms people don't necessarily understand, when you're a solar homeowner, you put solar panels on your roof, you consume some of your own power, but then you have some left over and the utility buys it back. And that's called net metering. And currently in most places, the sort of old rules are that the utility pays retail rates for your leftover power. But all across the country, utilities are fighting against this. They want to pay less basically and this is this is going down in in california right now there's a big battle yet another big battle in california over net metering and basically the question comes down to how much should utilities pay for this solar power that solar panel uh, owners are producing but more sort of broadly what is the um kind of what they're taking out of the grid in terms of not paying these fixed costs, right, for legacy infrastructure and stuff like that, versus the value they're contributing to the grid by, you know, producing power, various other things. So, you know, this is an endless fight. It's been going on forever. And it's, and it's, and it's the rubber's really hitting the road in California right now in the, in this case. So what's your take on that? Do you, I mean, I would assume you generally think that solar homeowners are generating value in excess of these, <laughs> in excess of what they're taking, but sort of lay out the kind of considerations there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, what I like to think about is, you know, when you're making 20, 30 year infrastructure decisions, let's look out at that time horizon. One of the benefits of the net metering is that back to the friction in the whole process, it's just a simple construct for homeowners to wrap their hands around for companies to model. And so it's worked quite well. And in fact, you know, particularly at lower penetrations, solar tends to line up nicely with peak power times. So people are running air conditioning and things. So I could even argue that in many places, the export rate should be even higher than retail. So if you actually look over, again, a longer period of time, the benefits that the distributed solar will offer the distribution system and congestion, I think will create a cheaper system. So back to the modeling that we've done at a more, you know, with more informed inputs and at a granule level, and this wasn't done by our company, this was done by a, you know, third-party expert. If we just continue with our current system, don't hit the sort of aggressive clean energy targets, you know, that's not a constraint. It will actually be 100, by 2050, the system will be, you know, $100 billion more expensive. So it's actually, so moving to clean energy is actually more affordable. And if you incorporate a good number of these distributed solar assets, the model would show that you would save 500 billion by 2050. So I, and one of the ways you get the costs out of the rooftop solar and things is just through deployment. It's it's a scale game. And the other benefit to it around these clean energy goals is it's fast. You know, how long, when was the last time we had a, you know, 
nuclear power plant or transmission line on budget and on time. You know, it's like we have very few years here to start to really make a dent. And if we could clean up a lot of the soft cost stuff and treat these like more like the appliances that they really should be, this is, you know, we can get gigawatts up in Sunrun, just just us alone, we have four gigawatts of solar capacity just on residential rooftops. And that makes us the second. Oh, wow. That's just in the U.S.? That's yeah, just US? that makes us the second or third largest solar company of of all. I mean, NextEra would be number one. And, you know, maybe mm. Tesla and us are close to number two. And we did that all rooftop by rooftop. So it can be meaningful and it can be a lot faster. You know, when we run some of these calculations, again, they're, none of those factors are really being taken into account. But, you know, I'll skip back to where should it go? I mean, in my own opinion, I like to just focus on how can we deliver a good consumer experience and get rid of all unnecessary costs. So what I would love to to say in California to, you know, the utilities and, and the regulators is, all right, so why don't we pay, you know, we can pay, like, I would rather, let's, we could argue about the math. I think our math is right. But you know, forget that. Let's say we pay a little bit more. And if you really care about customer experience, streamline these five things that add that cost you nothing, that add, you know, thousands of dollars to the homeowner experience. And so, you know, that's, I think, more durable for us. It's, you know, it's less of, you know, spending, wasting time and money on, you know, fighting these rate structure type battles. But then we do need to also do some work around the value of, you know, particularly the, the stationary battery. I, I do believe that almost all solar will be paired with a battery because of this unique, because of this unique ability to just dispatch that battery on a dime and meet all of these peaking needs and, and also help balance the intermittency of the big centralized renewable system as well. Let me interject a question here then, because this, I, this comes up and I never quite know what the answer is. That's an argument for their, t- that's an argument for storage on the grid. There are people who would say, if you want storage on the grid, build it big, right? Build a big giant grid infrastructure, a big grid storage bank, save money the same way you, you save money, uh, allegedly building, you know, um, solar at scale. What's the argument for distributing the storage to households versus just clumping it up in big, cheap chunks? That's a great question, and it's pretty straightforward. The, you get additional benefits from putting it on the distribution system. So one, you get the resiliency benefit, and that problem is only getting more intense with extreme weather. Our, our system, poles and wires are just constantly, it's going to be a constant battle with weather and cutting trees down. Um, and, you know, so you get the resiliency at the home level and a consumer will pay for that. So it's actually system-wide, it could be a savings because the consumer, what will the consumer pay for that? You know, we'll, we're finding easy, you know, people buy generators all the time, you know, right. so... The consumer serves, you know, takes some of that cost, and then it it offers the congestion benefits on that local system. And then as we get smarter to be able to sort of, you know, create the networking and the microgrids and things that could even, you know, give some kind of local resiliency benefits that you know a big centralized one can't do. And and the question that I still would put forward is, we just need both, and we need a lot of it, and we need it faster. 
And, you know, and, and it's like, this is where I get back to, should it, can we have more abundant thinking here? Because I, does the utility need to be three times bigger? You know, that's where we're, that's where we're going. So, okay. So we can deliver a better experience to people and get cleaner faster with, you know, a competitive DER market. And, you know, the, you know, the, we're going to need so much utility scale, solar and wind and, and central batteries and transmission lines. And, you know, it, there's no shortage of value to, to go around. You're singing my hymnal there. Bo- both and, both and is the, is the answer to every question that comes up in the energy world, pretty much. But a lot of the, you know, a lot of the benefits you cite are system benefits, right? That don't, and it's hard to sort of like, because of course the utility, when the utility's tallying up costs and benefits, it is generally tallying up costs and benefits to itself, to the, to the utility. And so if the, the costs strike the utility and the benefits are kind of system-wide and accrue to sort of, you know, the community and individual homeowners, you're back to, you're back to the incentives problem. I think if we... You are. And that's where I think regulators, but regulators can do a couple of things. They can, like I said, mandate reasonable turnaround times and virtual inspections and third-party use of labor wherever possible. That can be done. That can eliminate, you know, a ton of costs and it can allow, you know, homes to electrify so much faster with that. And then, you know, there can also be better market mechanisms to actually compensate these distributed resources. And so, you know, you can set it up where, you know, if you're the mechanism so that these virtual power plants can be created and actually help eliminate, you know, the peak, you know, these peaking power plants that run 2% of time, you know, out of the year. You know, there are things like that that can be done that could be massive unlock that, you know, don't really cost any money. Yeah, there's, you know, maybe the utility is on the margin, make, you know, making fewer infrastructure investments, but show me the utility plan that can get to clean energy by 2035. You know, you're going to have land battles, you're going to have cost overruns, you only have a, are they employing the best and brightest engineers out there in the world? It's all well and good to say, okay, you know, this, we don't like this rooftop solar, it's too expensive and, you know, this, that, and the other. But what's the alternative? Yeah, it's not clear that they've got one in, the, in, their, in their heads. I have not seen a how do we get to, you know, clean renewable energy by 2035 with centralized, with this more monopoly utility structure with any okay. reasonable cost or speed. It's a little bit like my 15-year-old strategy, which is just if I do what they tell me to do badly, eventually they'll stop telling me to do it. <laughs> Sounds like a teenager. <laughs> so um, let's talk about equity. It comes up a lot here. It comes up in the context of this net metering because one of the things utilities say is we have these past, you know, especially in California, like we have these past clean energy mandates we had to meet with some very expensive renewable energy contracts back in the day a few decades ago we're still paying those off we're still paying off the costs for uh, all the transmission system we built and the repairs and the upkeep of the transmission and distribution systems we have all these fixed costs that we spread out among our ratepayers and if we allow solar 
homeowners to get out of paying those fixed costs, they just end up getting routed to a smaller and smaller set of ratepayers. Those ratepayers that can't afford solar. So it's sort of the the ratepayers that are least equipped end up paying higher and higher bills because of these fixed costs. I'm just interested in your take on that specific narrow equity question and then sort of the larger equity question of, you know, I think a lot of people, you get this a lot in electric vehicles too and somewhat in solar. It's just like these are toys for the wealthy. And if you end up in a system where there are kind of two tiers of electrical service, either you are stuck with the utility or you have your own fancy stuff and backup, et cetera, then you're kind of getting away from the original vision of electricity in the U.S., which is this sort of universal service that everyone got a high-quality, reliable service. So just give me your thoughts on equity. First on the first on the sort of uh, fixed-cost piece and then kind of the larger question. Yeah, I, I still go back to pull back here. There is We need two to three times more of the electricity in the house that we have now. So this idea that it's fewer kilowatt hours spread out over, you know, f- you know, fewer people, I think is wrong. And, you know, per my earlier math around the modeling, the whole system is going to be cheaper. If we're going to actually hit the, the clean energy goals and the electrification that we need, the whole system is going to be cheaper with these distributed assets. And it's really, frankly, the only way to get there. And so, you know, there, there is, again, back to the electrical need. It's just there's plenty to go around where I don't, that, that sort of spiraling fixed cost thing, it just doesn't pencil for me. And then the I, whole idea of fixed cost, the grid being fixed cost is really quite crazy. So, I mean, we're going to spend in utility CapEx, in a year, we're going to spend $120 billion. The utilities spend more in new CapEx, two and a half times their depreciation. So the idea that it's a fixed cost is so flawed. Why would we need to be making these, you know, I think the estimate from EEI is like a trillion dollars in, in infrastructure going forward. So that the cost to build that is going to be cheaper with these DERs. And then also what I would say is the on the equity issue, you know, the, the peak, the dirty peaking fossil plants tend to be in more disadvantaged communities. And those are exactly the type of power plants that stationary storage can eliminate. And, you know, one of the, one of the interests, and there was, a, I think, a bill introduced by um, Senator um, Gillibrand, where, you know, there's an extra federal tax credit for solar and storage projects that are attached to eliminating, you know, dirty peaking gas plants, which I think is a great use of policy right there. And, you know, and we're, we're even doing that already right now in Oakland, where there is a plant in the, in the city that, you know, very urban that like burns jet fuel, you know, and we're going to be able to, to retire that with solar and batteries. I, I think there's so many flaws in that argument. And it's just sort of a convenient talking point. Unfortunately, I think it's captured kind of sounds intuitive on its face, which makes mm-hmm. you, makes it harder to, to challenge. But I think if you dig a layer deeper, um, you'll find that that doesn't have a lot of merit to it. And so the idea here is that even if I'm a homeowner that can't afford solar, the larger spread of distributed solar is going to A, possibly bring down my rates, and B, possibly clean up my air. So... So you it's think way more promise. You, yeah, they're exactly, um, you know, and, and maybe you 
maybe if you look one year out and look really narrowly at how you, you know, which kind of cost benefits are in here, maybe you paint a picture where, okay, there's some cost shift here that's happening, or maybe electricity prices are a little bit higher here. But it, with reasonable assumptions and an over any longer period of time, that math does not hold. And, you know, back to, you know, my point, I think it's a really scary talking point because, Rates are going up. Rates are going up because we have really old infrastructure and we have to move to, and we have resiliency problems. And, you know, and to use this as the excuse is a complete red herring. So, you know, back to my point, eliminate all rooftop solar in California rates are still going up. It occurs to me frequently that we, we being sort of, I don't know, society <laughs> spent, spent so long thinking about renewable energy as a sort of more expensive kind of green luxury good, that that has kind of wormed its way into all these discussions in very subtle ways. The sort of assumption that the switch over to renewables is more expensive and that greater expense is going to get stuck on someone, right? I mean, that's just like, it's very pervasive, even to someone like me who, you know, like consciously doesn't even think that anymore. Right. And even further to pile on to that, it's also associated associated with sacrifice, yeah. you know, a, a worse future. And that's why I love, you know, how, how I know, I believe you've covered Saul Griffith and the work they're doing on Rewire America. It does not have to be a worse future. You can save money by electrifying your house and your cars and not have to go to the gas station and realize that induction heating is better than a gas stove and have backup power when, you know, there's a storm. And you can do all of that with, with business models like mine, zero upfront investment because we finance it for you and maintain it and manage it for you. And you have a higher quality of life. We're talking about the, the intersection here with ordinary people's daily experience. So let's talk about an electrified home then. I think if you just sort of like pulled a rando off the street – and, and kind of ran all this by them. Like, what's what would an electrified home mean to you? Like, they would be like, eh, solar panels, and then maybe they would know something. Maybe they would know about the existence of batteries, home batteries. Probably EVs. not. <laughs> Probably not, right? But then maybe they know about EVs. Maybe they have some dim notion that EVs have a battery that can somehow interact with the home. But I don't think your average American has any glimmer yet of what people like you and me are talking about when we're talking about this sort of glorified, fully 22nd century home of the future. So so just like lay it out for us beyond the solar panel and the EV, like what is a fully electrified and grid connected home look like? Like what are all the kind of pieces around you as a homeowner? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, it, and again, it doesn't, you know, I also like to tell people too, it's like, because you're committing yourself to a, you know, responsible decarbonized future, you know, you don't have to be perfect on every dimension. It's just like, just sure. get a few of the big ones, right. You know, get your, your car electrified, power that with the solar panels or with community solar, you know, if you don't have the, the roof space for that. Well, also, and I think some pieces of it aren't even really possible yet, given the way we run things, the way we run utilities. But but, but wave, wave all that away and, and, and look in the future. Yeah, and, and back to the electrical panel, you know, <laughs> back to all my homes around the electrical panel. <laughs> yes. but then, and, then the, and then the water heater is a great one. Because that, you know, that really, and I think, you know, what, what that would look like for a consumer is, okay, your solar's cranking during the day, 
you want to take, you know, you take a shower when you get, you know, home from work, you can heat that during the day with the solar power. That technology is being used. So those couple of big, big things, the heating, the electric heating, the, the, the water heating, the cooks cooking and the vehicle and, you know, the, the fuel source into the house, those would be the, those would be the big ones. And, you know, when we, there's some great work being done to just map the whole country to say in which jurisdictions based on where prices are and where electricity rates are versus, you know, gas and things, where are consumers in the money right now to make those changes? And that is, I wish I had the stat with me right now, but that is millions and millions of homes. And it's not just in a California, it's, you know, across the whole the whole country. And, and that's the other benefit of the, you know, retrofitting this, this built environment too, is that these are the jobs that are in the communities. You know, it's not like the, it's not like you have to go with a lumpy job out into the desert to build a solar farm. You know, it's like they're in they're they're consistent in the community type jobs. Is it weather, is it climate kind of related? Like, like where, where those things are, are, profitable for homeowners now versus in the future is it mostly climate related or does it have more to do with kind of it has more jurisdictional to do with, stuff and rules yeah it has to do with yeah sun sun availability when you put the solar into the mix of course and then um incumbent price of power too right and how and, big and of, housing stock and you know all of that um and then how big of a deal is the software you know i can find there are people in energy who are very utopian about the software side about you know, AI and sort of your house is going to be so smart and each electron is going to be tracked and coordinated. Do you think if you just have like the big clean chunk chunks in place, <laughs> that's, that's most of the battle? Or do you think this sort of coordinating software type stuff is a big piece of the puzzle? I do. I think the big, the big chunks are probably the bulk of it, you know, but there are the coordination with the utility grid is where right. it gets a little bit more interesting. You know, where do you, where, where are the assets needed on the grid? Where's the capacity needed on the grid? When you get more into a, Hey, you know, we're making a better experience for the home, but we're also trying to support a cheaper and more scalable grid too, by being able to export when the grid needs it to, you know, manage supply and demand better. So I do think there's some, I do think there's some value there, but I, you know, there's so much value in just the big stuff that, you know, that's where I'm definitely focused. And so let's talk then these virtual power plants because I got a couple of questions around this that I'll just throw at you all at once and you can and tell me what you know about virtual power plants. So one thing that seems striking to me is that the big grid operators in terms of planning and administering the grid currently have virtually no visibility at all into your home if you're if you're if you're um you know generating solar power so there's this increasing there's this growing source of both kind of generation and load that just seems to be happening completely behind the utilities backs and is going to start having major effects on how the grid operates and then and i just what are they going to do it seems like somebody needs to be tracking and monitoring what's going on in all these electrified homes so that they can be coordinated. And so, you know, virtual power plants are this idea that some sort of private third-party entity 
will be in touch with all these thousands of homes, in touch with their software systems, and will be able to communicate with their software systems such as to coordinate their behavior. Say, like, demand, you know, you need demand to, to go down at a certain point. They can all sort of turn off their water heaters or whatever. That's a virtual, a virtual power plan is just like a bunch of connected homes that can be coordinated. So my question is, is the right model here for the third parties to have the visibility into the homes and then for the utilities to just deal with the third parties? Because that would mean a lot less complexity for utilities, right? If they were just dealing with fewer entities. Or do you think eventually like utilities are going to have to somehow see into all these homes to be able to coordinate it all? That's why the VPPs are really centered around the stationary battery because that is controllable, you know, at a moment's notice. So I, I would argue that, you know, you don't, the utility doesn't need visibility into it because the battery is that firm capacity we talked about earlier where, you know, the homeowner or, or you know, the building doesn't necessarily need to use that battery unless it's an outage situation. So there's no change in behavior required. So you just dispatch the capacity from the battery when the utility calls it. So I, I do not believe that that should be a barrier or, or is even a challenge. And, you know, and so I think that third parties kind of controlling that are, wouldn't, should not be an issue. I don't think most people are familiar with how this works. So if I'm just a customer and I've got my solar panel and my home battery and my EV and they're all connected, et cetera, what does it mean to me <laughs> To, to be part of a virtual power plant? It means that, you know, you would allow access to, with a company like Sunrun, to drain your, you know, battery and put it back into the grid when called by the utility. And so there's a number of different business models we're exploring when we do that. What we would offer our customers right now is, you know, you get a discounted battery if you're if you're willing to participate in these programs. So we share some of the value with the consumer and then you give them assurances, which are, you know, we have capabilities like storm mode where, you know, if you're anticipating some sort of high winds or storms, you know, you would, you would preserve it and you wouldn't export anything. You know, you would leave a certain amount of the battery capacity in the battery in case there was, you know, an outage. So there's, you know, controls around it from a customer experience. I think one thing worth mentioning, which may, maybe isn't as self-evident as I think it is, the, the powerful thing about the battery and the solar is that it recharges every day. So, you know, when Texas, when we had those outages and when there was the power shutoffs in California, we had customers that were without power for five days. But the solar can charge up the battery and you can use the battery all night and then the solar char charges it up again. So it's, I think just worth mentioning because I think a lot of people hear, oh, the batteries only, you know, works for eight hours or is the capacity there to really back up the home. But that's why pairing it with solar makes so much sense. I don't understand why the experience of California through the fires and then the experience of Texas through the cold snap didn't just create a stampede of demand for home batteries. Like it was such a visceral illustration of, of the, the risks of sort of being dependent on the grid, you know, people are like burning their back fences and stuff. And then like, there's this, whatever the one guy in Texas who figured out a way to hook his truck battery up and, and run his home and got like a story in the, the national newspaper about it. I was just thinking like, 
should be so routine? Like, do people just not know that's available? Did you see a spike in demand? We do. And, and not only should it be so routine, it's also, in many cases, doesn't cost you anything. It's cheaper. So, and, and when we sell it as a service, the monthly, the all-in monthly fee for the solar plus the battery is less money than you were paying the utility before. So it does certainly feel like uh, it should be a no-brainer. Now, getting back to my soft cost challenge, you know, you, you, but you have places like Santa Rosa, right in the heart of where the power shutoffs are, where they've now adopted a you know, new electric code, but none of the battery manufacturers are there yet. You know? And so you can't get anything permanent. These kind of frictions make it hard for that stampede to happen, even though the the value is definitely there. Right. You know, we do we do see a huge spike right after the event, but people have pretty short memories. I I, I think it builds <laughs> it builds though it will build. You know, when people realize that this is not a you know anomaly and this this is now the new reality with extreme weather and particularly in California, I don't understand why every home wouldn't have you know solar and a battery on it. Right. And then now I'm reading stories about PG&E buying thousands and thousands of diesel generators and distributing them for next time. It just seems crazy. Like we've got all the pieces of the solution sitting around, in some cases already installed. All we need is just like better ways of coordinating it and being aware of it and using what we've got and spreading it. And, and we're buying diesel generators in 2021. That's a perfect example. I was going to share that one as well. I think the there is not an appreciation yet for the power of these stationary batteries. And like we said, not only do they provide the resilience, which will be an ongoing thing, but when the homeowner's not using them for resilience, they can participate in these virtual power plants. That's the big win. You know, and that's getting back to why it makes sense, I think, to have the battery located, distributed versus in these big central banks. Again, we need it all, but is for those reasons. And so I'm a homeowner. I'm participating in a virtual power plant. Basically, I just check a box when I'm buying my solar panels from you saying, yes, you can do this, or my batteries from you saying, yes, you can do this. But like, I won't necessarily notice anything, right? It won't sort of affect my life, except, except I'll make some money, right? It'll reduce my bills. Is there a world in which a fully electrified home is producing so much value for the grid that it just zeroes out its costs or even or even is getting paid i mean is there is there is there a world in which some some or most homes are actually making money on electricity rather than having electricity bills i do believe so because the cost of the batteries are declining so significantly and you yes. know even more so, not even just the cell technology, but the back to soft cost, the form factor of them is that right now, many times you install a battery and there's four boxes and wiring between the different pieces of the equipment. That's mm. all getting, you know, designed better for the stationary market. And so why shouldn't it be a $4,000 battery with, you know, that takes a half hour to install? It should be able to get there pretty quickly. And, you know, some of the, the contracts, the early contracts for these virtual power plants pay out, you know, 
over the life of that battery could pay out that much money. So it's not inconceivable. And particularly, I'm making a you know huge bet as a business <laughs> owner, as an entrepreneur, that we are going to be needing all this power on the distribution system with EVs. We're just going to need it, and it will not be able to be served quickly and effectively with centralized, you know, monopoly-controlled infrastructure. Right. Well, that gets back to then, you know, by way of wrapping up about Sunrun's kind of future vision, I'm intrigued by this idea of you, of Sunrun, serving as the VPP um, owner, aggregator. I don't know (laughs) what the right right term there is. Curious whether you're currently doing that anywhere and, and how big a business that could eventually be, you know, in the future, like you can sort of imagine so many homes being hooked up like this under you, you know, under your sort of VPP that you become a, a really big utility, like a utility of, of a size and scale that rivals, you know, the big IOUs. And that would be something else <laughs> I mean, it'd be a whole different a whole different role is that is that the is that the goal is that, that what you is seem to say? absolutely the plan and we're well on our way so we've already announced 12 virtual power plant programs um that you know our customers will participate in so and what's the what's this like for these beginner this first round of vpps like how many how many homes are in a vpp or how many buildings Many of these are more, you know, pilot size. But what we're thinking about is how much of the geography has access to a program like this. You know, can we, is there, is there a mechanism by which these, these batteries can plug in and get compensated? And so when we look at our current footprint across the U.S., we sell solar in um, about, you know, 22 states right now. We've now, you know, opened up markets for virtual power plants in about 10% of those geographies, but our pipeline has about 50% of our geographies participating. Now there's different levels of, you know, value and, you know, I think utilities are either nervous or suggest they're nervous that the capacity isn't going to actually show up. So they, you know, are not kind of all going out on a limb right now to, you know, want to consider it this kind of firm capacity that it it is really by for all the reasons I described earlier. So we're optimistic that, you know, within a, a year or two, you know, 50% of our geographies would have access to a kind of program like this. And so it's it's happening. Like what happens if, I don't know, in the state of California, in some distant future, you've got so many Californians signed up as part of virtual power plants that you are controlling an amount of energy comparable to the amount, I don't know, PG&E controls. How is that going to work? <laughs> do you become, do you become, like, to what extent do utility regulations apply to you? Like, are you under the same sort of utility regulatory regime that PG&E is? Or I, I guess well, I just, I don't like... Think, I mean, I, I think I, I like where you're going with this, because that certainly is the goal. And, you know, the difference is why it's not as appropriate to be regulated is we're not being... We operate in a competitive market. You know, we're not being given any sort of monopoly benefits, you know, which you then need to oversee. We're, we're If we're not offering the, you know, most cost-effective home electrification service 
XYZ company down the street will do it. So we, we constantly, we have the, we have to compete. I see. So if you are not providing the kind of reliability and low costs that PG&E is mandated by law to provide, customers will just switch is the idea. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think the, there are penalties that we would pay if the capacity isn't given to the grid so that they can actually count on it for resource adequacy. Do you think that like lawmakers (laughs) and regulators are prepared? It doesn't seem like there are lots of technical barriers in the way of that happening. So you could imagine that. Just soft costs. (laughs) Right, right. If you can get the soft costs down, you can imagine that happening Mm -hmm. relatively quickly. And I would look at, I mean, in terms of how, I don't have the numbers at my fingertip right now, but if you just look at the amount of generation assets that run, you know, less than 5% of the time. Right, right. Those are easy, easy, easy targets to be replaced by these virtual power plants. Yeah, and 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 this gets back to one of our previous questions, which is if you are bringing a bunch of virtual power plants online and laying waste to the peaker plant uh, <laughs> market, one of the effects of that is going to be probably to force the early retirement of a bunch of big, hard assets, right? Thereby creating, like, who's paying those off then, right? We're back to who's paying those off. And PG&E says, well, you know, our poor customers are going to pay them off. And that is going to drive more customers over to these virtual power plants and leave fewer and fewer customers paying off these these costs like how do you you know if, if 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 solar and vpps expand super fast as we all want them to i think that is going to create a big wave of early retirements and how do you do you anticipate that being a political problem like how do you see those costs getting allocated no because again i think that per the math these fixed costs are not fixed costs. These guys are, you know, the, the utility spend is going to be so considerable going forward and the power need is going to be so considerable going forward that I don't think these, this stranded asset future, given the amount of power we need, is is the problem. I think the... So you think rising demand will prevent some... Yeah, and I, and I think, and I think that even... But it's, and it's just yet another reason why we need to anticipate the cost improvements and just the consumer appeal of the solar and the battery so that we don't make mistakes on 30-year investments. And that's why I, I would really encourage, you know, this whole natural gas as a, as a bridge fuel thing. I mean, we, we just really need to think about that because, you know, this is even more extreme, but it's really, I don't see why we as a country want to pay to maintain both a natural gas infrastructure and electricity infrastructure. Mm. over time now that gets into like okay there's now you're getting really big now we're getting big but you know (laughs) it's it's true and an earlier comment i didn't make when you talked about what does the electrification of the home look like you're you know to a consumer well some of that it will be driven by just the fact that it's a better lifestyle and companies like ours will make it really easy and affordable to switch over but some of it'll be mandated where you know you new construction will just have to not have natural gas piped into the house 
but what about biogas? We got to save the save all the pipelines for biogas. Are you going to sell heat pumps too? I forgot to ask about that. Of all the pieces of the yeah, electrified I think home, that, that it's a, a be, huge one. I think that would be a natural one as well. Oh, oh, interesting. So, so really, like a full home electrification, full spectrum home electrification service. Yeah, I mean, I think we have the ability. You know, if you just look at what we have as a as a company, we have we have the the trucks, the labor, the sales force, the ability to navigate. What does your utility look like? Bill before and after. How does all this interface with your with your electric right. panel? How does it interface with you know what you want to do with your car and with your roof? You know, we're at a natural we're a natural company to you know help educate and provide those services. And I think that's one of the reasons why Ford was excited to partner with us as well, you know, because we can help make that customer experience around buying an EV vehicle that much easier because we have experts around electricity in the house. Oh my gosh. It seems like you should be able to market that in Texas right now so easily. Uh, I would a, bi- think so. a big truck that will keep you warm through the next cold snap. That's, that's just, that's marketing gold in Texas mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, and I think also, you know, the which will help because I think the EV adoption obviously in California is that much more significant, but we really need to get it in places like Texas. So then just to end with, we can imagine then a future, or let's say I imagine the future and you tell me how far away it is. Say I'm a random homeowner in Ohio and I decide, fine, I need to get on this bandwagon. I've got a a big old gas gasoline truck. I've got a natural gas furnace. I've got a gas stove. I've got crappy baseboard heat or maybe a central furnace heat. And I go to sunrun.com, put in my uh, uh, zip code, click a button, click order, and you come and when you're done, my house is electrified, has electrical heat, electrical hookup to the EV, generating its own electricity. My home is now net net zero energy consumer producing its own energy, full package deal. And all I have to do as a homeowner is click the button. Is that imaginable? And if so, how soon is that imaginable? I think absolutely. And I, you know, and that's technical barriers are not really there. It's the the soft costs and the permits and the interconnection and the, you know, and so that's why I'm so passionate about unblocking, you know, those unnecessary frictions because yeah. the, the tech- I never know whether I'm more or less optimistic about those than the technical, like <laughs> technological advances I have great faith in, but trying to get bureaucracies to change their rules. Exactly. Uh, and that, and so that's my personal passion right now is to bring the street smarts and knock those out where we can see them. Right. Okay. Well, it's an exciting time to be in your business. I will say you probably, I'm sure you agree. It's the, <laughs> it's the, it definitely, I've been at it for 14 years and it feels like this is the real inflection point. Right. Things are coming together. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming on. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. I'll talk to you again. Bye. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Bye.